When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network Women's History Channel. I'm your host, Nicole Bourbonnet, an Associate Professor of International History and Politics at the Graduate Institute in Geneva, Switzerland. And I'm joined today by Dr. Emily Clancher-Merchant, an Assistant Professor of Science and Technology Studies at the University of California, Davis. Emily is author of the book, Building the Population Bomb, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. The book traces how scientists, philanthropists, and governments across the globe came to define the growth of the world's population as a problem. She argues that this process was neither obvious nor uncontested and challenges us to overcome our learned fear of population growth so that we can more adequately address the real barriers to economic, environmental, and reproductive justice. And the book was recently awarded the 2022 Merle Curti Intellectual History Award by the Organization of American Historians, given annually for the best book in American intellectual history. So thank you so much, Emily, uh, for joining me today to talk about this really rich, really nuanced book. Uh, of course, a lot has been written on population, uh, but your book is really unique in the way that it focuses in on demographers and natural scientists as these really key actors in developing the very concept of a, a population problem. And so I wanted to start by asking you, you know, first, how you became interested in population in general and why you decided to focus on these particular actors. So why demographers and scientists? Yeah, thanks, Nicole, and um, thanks for having me here. It's it's great to um, great to be able to chat about the book. Uh, so yeah, so it's kind of a long story how I came to this project, but um, so I was in grad school in the history department at the University of Michigan, and I was studying um, British imperialism in West Africa. And um, I started having some health problems and I needed to uh, take a break from grad school. And I got a job as a research assistant in a historical demography lab. So working with a group of people who were uh, researching population change in the past. And originally I was just um, managing data. So I learned how to 
um, work with numeric data, work with statistical computing. And then after a couple of years, my boss in that job, um, Myron Gutman, he suggested that I take some demography courses in the sociology department at the University of Michigan. So I took, it's a two course sequence that all graduate students in demography take. It was taught by um, taught by Barbara Anderson. And, and it was a great series of courses. So the first one was demographic theory, and the second was demographic techniques, demographic methods. And I was sitting in the class and given my, um, my background in kind of British imperial history, I started getting very curious about the history of demography, about the history of this field that I was learning about being in that class, you know, and, and learning about what demographers thought about and worried about, um, there was a lot of there was a lot of modernization theory involved, uh, which surprised me a little bit. I thought modernization theory had already kind of been discarded. And it started to occur to me that demography, that the questions and problems that the field dealt with um, were very pegged to the Cold War and decolonization managing decolonization in a Cold War world. And so I started just getting very curious about this, this history. And um, after I finished the two courses, you know, my, um, my boss in my research job sat me down and said, you know, it's, it's time for you to finish your PhD. And so I decided to go back to back to the history department. But now with a new focus, uh, I wanted to do the history of demography. And so I, I went to um, John Carson, who I'd never met before, and asked him to be my advisor. And miraculously, he said yes. I spent the next year um, studying for my, my exams, um, putting together, you know, kind of a whole new committee and taking some classes to get up to speed in American history, the history of science. And um, so finally, in the summer of 2012, I went... Uh, to do the research for my dissertation, which was, you know, kind of the first iteration of this book. And, um, and I was really focused on the demographers at first. And because I was thinking of it as, you know, as a history of science type of project. And so I found, you know, where all of the, the papers of demographers were and, and started there, but very quickly realized that it was bigger than that. And in particular, that I needed to follow the money and to look at who was employing demographers, who was funding their research and their other activities. Um, and then also realizing that um, that demographers weren't the whole story, that there were other people talking about population as well, uh, namely natural scientists, and so started started following them as well. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting this wide stretch of people, right? Because okay, there's the demographers seems like a fairly obvious connection to population, but then you have you know Raymond Pearl who's studying flies, and uh, you know Paul Ehrlich who's uh, you know studying butterflies, I think, I think you read in the book. Uh, so can you tell us a bit about how these kinds of actors get interested in, uh, intervene in the population question, coming from a kind of natural science angle? Yeah. So 
with the book, the book kind of ends up telling two very intertwined stories about scientific approaches to population. So one is a natural science approach and one is a social science or, or demographic approach. And the natural science approach um, is, the, is the earlier one. It begins a, a little bit earlier than the social scientific or demographic approach. And, um, and Raymond Pearl is kind of the first biologist to really start thinking about population growth as a systematic process, as something that kind of has a, a momentum or a pattern of its own that he thought he could identify um, by looking at, at um, experimental organisms, so fruit flies, yeast, things that, um, that are born and die much more quickly than that have much shorter lifespans um, than humans. And what he noticed in these populations was that um, that these populations grew in um, kind of an S-shaped growth pattern. And this was also the pattern of growth that had been identified for individual organisms. And he began thinking about populations as kind of superorganisms, and um, superorganisms that kind of grew on their own trajectories, and thinking about population really in aggregate terms in relationship to natural resources. So this was in the 1920s um, that Raymond Pearl was um, was starting to think about population in these terms, and these ideas about population were really closely tied to Pearl's support for um, Margaret Sanger's project of legalizing birth control. Pearl was, he was a eugenicist, but he was critical of mainstream eugenics at the time. He felt that, that the ways that eugenicists were kind of promoting population improvement uh, that they thought of um, it being were inconsistent with what was then known about the science of heredity. And um, so the idea, kind of the mainstream ideas in eugenics at the time were that sterilization could really improve kind of the overall quality of the human population by removing deleterious genes from the gene pool. And the, the kind of quality that people were, were mostly concerned with at the time that eugenicists were concerned with was intelligence. So the idea being that if, if um, people who had intellectual disabilities were sterilized, that would improve the overall um, intelligence of the population. And Pearl realized that that wasn't exactly in keeping with, with Mendelian heredity and that it was actually more important to um, prevent people from having large families if the children that they already had were, um, you know, were considered to be not ideal according to eugenic standards. And so Pearl st really started pushing for birth control as opposed to sterilization as a tool of, of eugenics. And his ideas about population were, were really very wrapped up in that. And he also started warning that um, population was growing too rapidly as a way of um, legitimizing birth control legalization. So for Raymond Pearl, um, his theory about population growing in this S-shaped pattern really pointed to a problem of impending overpopulation that could be solved by um, the legalization of birth control and its application, particularly in a eugenic manner. And um, 
And these ideas really never went away, even though they didn't get incorporated into the science of demography that emerged over the next decade. So in the 1930s, um, statisticians and social scientists came up with an entirely different understanding of population as um, instead of as kind of a, an organism, the way that Pearl was thinking of it, um, statisticians and social scientists thought of population as an aggregate of individual people and um, thought about population growth and change in terms of age-specific birth rates. And this actually pointed to a totally different problem, which was underpopulation rather than overpopulation. Uh, so if, if you looked at population growth in terms of age-specific birth rates, it appeared that if age-specific birth rates were to continue um, unchanged into the future, that the population of the United States and other countries in Western Europe would begin to decline uh, pretty quickly. And so this was, again, this was the 1930s. Um, demographers in the United States and Western Europe were mainly concerned with their own countries. They hadn't gotten worried about uh, the global South yet. And so these ways of thinking about and analyzing population became the science of demography, and yet the natural science approach continued and continued to be promoted um, by, uh, by people who supported eugenics, by people who supported immigration restriction, and they, they kind of survived that, you know, if we think of World War II as kind of a historical break, these ideas survived that break and um, got kind of repackaged in the Cold War period as now the threat was um, that if population grew too quickly, that non-aligned countries uh, would remain mired in poverty because of population growth, which would um, promote communist revolution. And this was the idea that Paul Ehrlich picked up um, in the 1960s and um, became the basis for his book, The Population Bomb. So his book you know, takes up these very uh, early natural scientific ideas about population from the 1920s that had been completely discarded by demographers, but never really let go of by natural scientists and uh, repackaged it as a kind of a nuclear threat and a threat to the environment in the 1960s. Right. Yeah. So there's this kind of disciplinary divide. Uh, but then you also point in the book that there's these two positions that emerge, one kind of a more moderate position. So encouraging, you know, we, okay, everyone's kind of starts to agree that there's this population bomb, there's po or this population problem. Uh, there's this increasing consensus around this uh, in the post-World War II period. But then there's a split between those who advocate for a more moderate position and those for who advocate for a more aggressive forms of population control to address this perceived problem. So could you maybe outline a bit these two different positions, so how they kind of framed the, the solutions differently and, and what some of the key actors were on, on either side of, of this, uh, either side of the coin when it came to kind of moderate versus more aggressive positions? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so as I as I said before, during the um, the period between World War One and World War Two, the interwar period, uh, social scientists and natural scientists really disagreed about what the population problem was. Was it the population was growing too slowly? Was it that birth rates were falling and population was going to start declining? But after World War Two, 
everybody, the natural scientists and the social scientists, turned their attention to the global south. And it, it quickly became apparent that um, countries in Asia and Latin America were growing um, quite rapidly because public health interventions had reduced mortality rates. Fertility rates had kind of remained the same, but mortality rates had gone down considerably, which meant that overall population was growing quickly, regardless of whether you looked at it in an aggregate perspective or in terms of age-specific vital rates. So everyone agreed that, that population is growing very quickly in Asia and Latin America after, after World War II. Population was not growing very quickly in Africa because um, mortality rates were still high. Um, but the, the scientists of all kinds were concerned that, you know, mortality would soon decline in Africa and then population would start growing there as well. And so, so then the, the question is, well, what are the consequences of that population growth? And, um, and the truth was that, that nobody really knew uh, because it just was a new experience. The world's population had never, had never grown that way before. And so the, um, the natural, science and the social, natural scientists and social scientists uh, didn't exactly come together, but there was a project that brought their perspectives together. And this was a simulation project where a demographer from Princeton University, so this was Ansley Cole, he projected uh, population growth in India over, so he was doing this research in the mid-1950s, and he projected population growth from the 1950s to the 1980s under two fertility scenarios. So one scenario is that fertility remains the same and population grows pretty quickly, and the other one is that fertility is cut in half, so population grows much more slowly. And um, that project also included an economist, Edgar Hoover, who projected economic growth under these two, these two scenarios. And um, so, so because it's a simulation study, the outcome was completely determined by the assumptions of the model. And so they assumed that rapid population growth would divert um, income from capital investment into kind of everyday things like food and clothing and shelter. And therefore that with uh, faster population growth, there would be less capital investment, less industrialization, less economic growth. And they found that, you know, under these assumptions, you still get economic growth, even under the high fertility scenario, you just get more growth with lower fertility. And these assumptions were, were later proved to be not true. But even with these assumptions, you still get economic growth, just not as much um, as if you reduce fertility. And so uh, two organizations kind of working in concert with each other, the Population Council and the Population Reference Bureau, um, both publicized these results as evidence that population growth was a barrier to economic development in the global south. So they really overhyped and oversold the results of this study. Um, but this became the, the common wisdom. This became um, you know, what scientists believed, what policymakers believed, and it was circulated. The results of the study were circulated worldwide, primarily by the, the Population Council. The Population Council had been established uh, in 1952 by um, John D. Rockefeller III, along with uh, Frederick Osborne, who is a major figure in the eugenics movement, and Frank Notstein, who was one of the, the first prominent demographers in the United States. 
And so um, these two organizations are, are promoting this idea that that population growth is a barrier to economic development. And um, so you've got this, this consensus that population growth is a problem. The question then becomes what to do about it. And the Population Council um, is what will become kind of the moderate side of this, um, of this split. And so the, what the Population Council wants to do is to solve the, the so-called problem of, of impending overpopulation through family planning. And they actually mean something very specific by family planning. So, you know, now we often use the term family planning as kind of like a synonym or a euphemism for birth control. But family planning was a term that was actually coined largely by Frederick Osborne in the 1930s to mean uh, birth control combined with a kind of social control over the use of birth control. And this, this had been his solution to um, democratizing American eugenics in the 1930s. So in the 1930s, Frederick Osborne had been really concerned with differentiating American eugenics from European fascism. And he did this in two ways, one by kind of purging American eugenics of overt racism. So there's still all kinds of racism there. It's just not no longer on the surface. And second, by eschewing um, sterilization and instead promoting what he called freedom of reproduction. But what he really meant by freedom of reproduction was a world in which birth control is, is universally available and probably free because he wanted poorer people to use it more but in which there's certain social norms and economic incentives that promote large families among wealthier people and smaller families among poorer people. So this was the context in which the term family planning um, was created. And so in the, the post-World War II period, Frederick Osborne is now the, um, the director of the Population Council, which is looking to reduce population growth overseas. And so in that context, what family planning means is the distribution of, of contraceptive technologies and the Population Council um, funded the development of the IUD. The Population Council actually held the patent on the world's most popular IUD, the Lippies Loop, and it uh, licensed that patent for free to um, producers in various parts of the world. So family planning meant that you kind of saturate the world with IUDs and at the same time put out propaganda that's going to encourage people to accept IUDs. And um, so partly just to make birth control more socially acceptable, but then also to convince individuals that they could help their families and their countries by actually getting an IUD. So this is what the Population Council meant by family planning. It wasn't just, you know, let's put clinics around the world. It was like, let's do whatever we need to do to get IUDs into people's bodies. Um, but whatever we need to do was not supposed to include any kind of coercion. And the main thing that the Population Council meant by coercion was legal restrictions on how many children people could have or who could have children or who had to get an IUD. So as long as nobody was legally required to get an IUD or legally prevented from having the number of children that they wanted, the program was not considered coercive. 
Um, so that's the moderate approach. That's the population councils approach. This approach um, would come to be kind of characteristic of, of what's coming to be known as the population establishment. So the population establishment includes um, the population council. It includes um, by this time most American demographers. So by so now we're we're in the 1960s when we've got IUDs kind of being shipped around the world. Um, so most American demographers now are affiliated uh, with university-based population research centers, many of which are getting funding either from the Population Council or from the Ford Foundation, which was the Population Council's largest donor. So the Population Council and the Ford Foundation were really working together to promote this family planning solution to the population problem. And the idea behind the um, family planning solution is that it's supposed to preserve um, that's supposed to preserve political stability. What demographers, you know, were what they were worried about with population growth was that population growth um, prevents economic development and could then cause political instability as a result of poverty, disaffection, um, spreading communism. And so uh, for the population council and the demographers who are involved, you know, they worried that any any overt promotion of population control from the United States, particularly from the United States government. So the Population Council for a long time stayed very far away from the United States government, um, could backfire and actually promote communist revolution, which is what they're trying to avoid. So, so for them, you know, population, or sorry, for them, family planning is about as far as you can go toward population control without risking um, instability, political instability. Now, oh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, it, it was making me think of this, this great, great quote that you have in the book from the concerned demographers where they're kind of talking about, you know, the AID boys who have this idea of, you know, give a poor family an IUD and tomorrow they'll be as wealthy as, as the Rockefellers. So this kind of, you know, um, very kind of simplistic approach uh, but kind of rooted in this, uh, you know, IUDs, contraceptives as leading to the economic development that will promote this stability as, as this kind of uh, version. But then, of course, as, as we're, I assume, about to get to, there's also these actors who are making these more kind of aggressive, aggressive proposals. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, you know, as I said, with the, the simulation study in India, its results were um, popularized by the Population Council working together with another organization, Population Reference Bureau. And the Population Reference Bureau um, was a much older organization. It had emerged in the 19, in 1929. It was started by Guy Birch, who was uh, kind of an old school eugenicist. He never kind of gave up ra uh, overt racism, even when the mainstream eugenics movement kind of jettisoned it. And um, he was the one who really kind of made eugenics safe, I'm using air quotes here, made eugenics safe for the post-World War II period by reframing eugenic concerns in terms of population quantity rather than population quality. So he was the one who kind of carried the, the natural science narrative of overpopulation from the interwar period into the post-war period. And... Um, and so, and it's it's 
through his work and, and the work of his successors. Uh, so um, Hugh Moore, William Vogt, and Fairfield Osborne, who's the cousin of Frederick Osborne. Um, these are the guys who are really starting to talk about population growth um, as an environmental danger. So, you know, uh, Raymond Pearl and, and his colleague Edward East ha had been talking about population in relation to natural resources, but it was really these post-war figures um, who kind of sparked uh, the environmental movement um, and the, the population focus within that environmental movement, which is what which is what Paul Ehrlich would pick up. And so these guys, um, whereas the Population Council was really working through through science initially, making kind of a scientific um, case for population control and family planning, these guys were working through public opinion. They were writing for popular audiences. They were appealing directly to policymakers. Actually, I should say they were appealing directly to the public to then appeal to, po to policymakers. So um, Hugh Moore and his colleague, uh, William Draper, were putting full-page ads in newspapers telling the American public to pressure their policymakers to do something about um, population growth overseas. And at first, they were uh, putting these warnings out, um, really framing them in Cold War terms and in terms of um, economic development overseas, and then later start moving into a more environmental language. And so, you know, I talk about a consensus between this group and the population establishment in the 1950s, early 1960s, um, because at that point, these two groups are really working together to convince basically everyone, uh, the American public, scientists worldwide, policymakers worldwide, that population growth is a problem and something needs to be done about it. And they're not really differentiating between themselves between the, the kind of economic dangers of population growth, the environmental dangers of population growth, or um, between family planning and more kind of overt means of population control as a solution. But in the late 1960s, uh, Paul Ehrlich and, um, and his kind of crew um, who in my in my dissertation I referred to them as the population bomb squad in the book they become the population <laughs> bombers. <laughs> Yeah, so these population bombers, um, they are concerned, they become concerned by the end of the 1960s that the, that the family planning approach to population control is never going to slow population growth enough to prevent uh, ecological disaster, environmental disaster. And so they really, at that point, um, break with the population establishment and start overtly promoting um means of population control that the Population Council had defined as coercive. So legal limits on how many children people could have, or um, what they really wanted was for countries to adopt population growth targets that were that were numeric. So, you know, this rate of growth by this date, that rate of growth by that date. And um, so this is where this split happens between the, the moderates, the population establishment, so this is the population council, demographers, and um, the population bombers, who are kind of the extreme population control at any cost folks. And, um, and so that's uh, the Population Reference Bureau, the organization Zero Population Growth, Paul Ehrlich, Garrett Hardin, um, 
people like that. And some of those folks actually um, were affiliated with the State Department as well. Yeah, and it's it was really interesting, though. I mean, you, you point out in the book that Paul Ehrlich's book, The Population Bomb, is almost more like a work of science fiction than than science, right? So it's it's really projecting all these kind of crazy scenarios, you know, that pretty much all of them end in nuclear war, except maybe like one, one of the scenarios. And it's critiqued a lot by academics at the time, right, by, by other commentators, and yet has such a big impact on the broader American public. And so I was wondering, as I was reading it, is there also kind of a story here about the split between academic and popular science and the way science is communicated to the public? I mean, is this you know, also part of the problem of how we end up with this anxiety because there's, you know, on the one hand, these very powerful books that that really can create this, this uh, panic and no amount of, you know, critiques in academic journals seems to, seems to quell that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that was what, you know, one of the discoveries that I made you know, through the very long research process for this book was, you know, I, I kind of went into it thinking that demographers were going to be the protagonists, they were going to be the villains. Um, and, you know, the more research I did, the more I realized that demographers really lost control of the story. And, um, and not that, not that the, the story that they were telling was right. Um, but that, they really had very little control over how their research um, was kind of packaged and utilized and promoted. And beyond that, that they really were not writing for popular audiences the way that the natural scientists in particular were. And yeah, so there's this, you know, fairly strong, I would say disconnect between the science um, that's being published in scientific journals and the narrative that's that's getting out into the world. And this is very intentional on the part of the Population Council, the Population Reference Bureau, um, and also I would say uh, certain scientists who are writing for popular audiences like, like Paul Ehrlich, like William Vogt. And you know, and I wouldn't say that the that demographers were, um, you know, heroes in this story, uh, because they were kind of letting this happen. They were not, you know, publicly pushing against these narratives that among themselves they knew to be false, uh, because they were benefiting from them. They were these narratives were bringing them huge amounts of funding, um, public legitimacy, and authority. Because you know, the more that population was a problem. Uh, the more important demographers became. Yeah, and then that maybe brings us back to the point you made at the very beginning about following the money, right? About where is the money coming from and, and where is it going? So can you maybe tell us a bit maybe from a methodological sense of how you follow the money? Um, what kinds of sources were you looking at? How were you drawing connections, uh, tracing those networks of uh, funding, of uh, the, you know, the growth of these population centers, that kind of thing. I mean, you talked a little bit in the introduction about using uh, family trees and, and using some digital methods as well. So can you maybe tell us a bit more about that, uh, about your approach to following these networks? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
So, yeah, as I said a little bit before, you know, I, I went into the project thinking that that the scientists were going to be the main character is kind of the most the most important piece of the story, um, that their papers were kind of going to give me the most important pieces of the story. And, you know, what I realized as I was, you know, working on it, um, but also it makes it makes sense from a from a science and technology studies perspective is that um, science science isn't done in a vacuum, but in particular, science requires a lot of money. Like doing science and communicating and circulating the results of science um, requires a lot of money. And, you know, just thinking about kind of all of the institutions that need to be in place in order for something to be a science. So, you know, one thing that I've gotten a lot of, of pushback on is my claim that that demography really coalesces as a scientific field in the 1920s. People say, oh no, demography is, is much older than that. And, and it is in the sense that the kinds of ways of thinking about population, um, analyzing population exist in various places, but it's hard to say that we have a science of demography in the sense of um, scientific journals, uh, university research centers, there, there never really were demography departments, but university research centers, professional organizations, those really come together um, in the, the, particularly in the 1930s. And part of the reason why they come together is um, because people are funding them for other projects, for other purposes. So um, a big part of the story in the book that I've gotten into a little bit here is um, this eugenic project of trying to differentiate American eugenics from um, European fascism. And it was really the American Eugenics Society and its leadership who saw, um, so this is Frederick Osborne who we're talking about, um, really saw demography as an important ally in that project and directed a lot of funding to um, organizations that were becoming kind of the institutions of demography. So the Population Association of America, um, the Office of Population Research at Princeton. And then we also get the first um, demography journal population index. And so, you know, it was through thinking about where these organizations come from and, and who funds them um, that I really realized yeah, the importance of money um, and thinking about where it's coming from, where it's going, who's directing it. Um, so I ended up just for myself drawing a lot of diagrams of like, okay, who's connected to who? Where is the money? And um, so in the book, there's a, a family tree of, of Frederick Osborne's family, just so that you can see how well the, how well connected this person is, um, but also how important genealogy is to him as a eugenicist. And um, family trees that I made that didn't make it into the book, so family trees of, of the Rockefeller family, but then also of um, more you know, metaphorical families, like who's among demographers, who studied with whom. Um, so on my website, I have a, a kind of family tree of demography. So you can see who studied with whom and where. So you can kind of see how ideas travel because ideas, um, ideas really don't float freely. They have to get communicated between people in one way or another. And money really 
facilitates that communication. Um, and so it became, it just became very fruitful for, for me to think about who was funding what and why, but then also for organizations like, um, like the Population Council, where is their money coming from? And not just where is their money coming from, but what form is it in? It turns out they got a lot of their contributions in corporate stock. And when you think about, you know, a, a non-governmental organization that is getting its funding, whose funding is in corporate stock, it's probably not going to do anything that would make the price, the value of that stock want to fall. Um, so just also thinking about whose interests are being served by which organizations. Yeah, and a lot of this comes up even within demography, right? So you point out how in the kind of 70s, 80s, there's these growing internal critiques among demographers. There's this rise of this group called concerned demographers who are pointing out these, insta you know, these connections between major funders and the population establishment and kind of critiquing that policy oriented uh, approach, pointing to some of the inequalities within the field, gender, you know, race, all of this kind of thing. Um, and of course, this, this points to some of the broader you know, problems with the, with this field, which as, as you point out in the book, um, some feminist critics like Joan Dunlop, who herself worked for the Population Council, describe as kind of just just suffused with racism and and sexism within this field. But you actually make up make an argument in the book that you know, in spite of this kind of checkered history of demography and the obvious problems in the way that anxiety over population has been mobilized in the past, that there is still a value to population science and to the concept of population. You know that we shouldn't kind of throw the baby out with bathwater. Uh, so to speak. And can you maybe explain a bit uh, how you came to this position and, and why you think it's important to, to make this, this argument? Yeah, so I, I came to this position by being uh, really immersed in demography while I was working on this project. So, you know, as I said, I was working in a, a historical demography lab. I ended up working there for eight years altogether while I was doing kind of the dissertation stage of this project. Um, I became really involved in the Population Association of America. Um, I started editing their newsletter. I joined the association's history committee. And um, through, through all of these experiences, I realized that demography, demography had really changed a lot um, since 1974, which is where the bulk of the book ends, you know, the last chapter before the epilogue ends um, in 1974, when, and at that point, demography is, it's really in a crisis. The um, intellectuals and heads of state from the global south at that point in time in 1974 was um, a big UN population conference. And at that conference, intellectuals and heads of state from the global south rejected uh, family planning as a form of development aid. So, you know, nothing wrong with birth control in and of itself, but it's not going to promote economic development. And this really undercut a lot of the, the moral legitimacy for population control projects. Um, the, the Ford Foundation really pulled all of its money out of population control, switched to uh, reproductive health instead, but also um, just pulled its funding away from demography at that point as well. And so the field of demography was really kind of left in a crisis at that point and, um, and had, to, had to retool. 
And that retooling, um, part of that process, or a big part of that process of retooling was uh, turning toward a new funder, which is the, the National Institutes of Health, and reorienting um, their research programs around questions of interest to, to the NIH, so um, around health interests. These questions really, uh, or I would say demographers working on these questions became really in, interested in problems of social inequality in the United States. Um, so socioeconomic inequality, racial inequality, and, and it wasn't that demographers hadn't looked at that before, um, it had just been a very small part of the field of demography before the mid-1970s. And so moving into the 80s, particularly the 90s, this really became a major focus of demography. And it turns out that, uh, you know, the tools, the same tools that demographers have kind of developed to analyze population growth and to think about controlling population were also really good tools to think about the way that um that goods and goods and ills are distributed um, within a population and in ways that can really help us think about the causes and consequences of, of inequality. And so I think as an analytic tool, population is still very valuable. I think population as kind of an object to be managed or controlled, um, very problematic, but as an analytic tool to think about, um, to think about justice and equity, it's very valuable. Yeah, it was really interesting to me. I mean, I have to say having, you know, usually the story kind of stops in 74 or or in 94 with with Cairo and 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 demography kind of fades out of the picture. So it was really interesting for me to see kind of how it is, has also changed and evolved and and been repurposed uh, since then. And yet at the same time, the the narrative, I mean, you talked later about the difference between the narrative and the science. And as, as we see really from the introduction, the narrative continues to be very simplistic in the popular sphere, right? So we still have kind of Bill Nye with his experiments talking about how can we possibly control population? It's growing too fast. You know, that narrative kind of continues. And you mentioned that that this is maybe because it's sort of both terrifying and reassuring at, at the same time. Uh, so maybe just very briefly, we've, we've kind of talked for a while now, but can you explain what you mean by reassuring? You know, why is that population narrative, that fear of population growth, um, reassuring in some way? So I think what's reassuring about it is that it, it gives a very clear, um, it provides a very clear source of the problem is, well, there's, there's just too many people and that, you know, with fewer people, well, there would be, um, you know, more of the good stuff to go around, less of the bad stuff to have to deal with. And, um, and it seems, you know, very obvious because we can think about it in terms of kind of per capita equations, right? So if we've got like money, in the numerator and people in the denominator, well, just reducing the number of people, that's going to mean more money for everybody, right? Or if we're thinking about a carbon footprint, well, if we have fewer people putting out that carbon footprint, well, then we're going to have less carbon. And both of those um, kind of per capita ways of thinking are really misleading because um, they assume that um, on the one hand, either they assume that kind of the amount of good stuff is going to stay the same with fewer people and that it's somehow being distributed equitably. Um, and then with, you know, the carbon example, they assume that each of us is actually responsible for our own carbon footprint, which is which is not the case. And so with fewer people, you'd still have um, 
you know, corporations uh, producing huge amounts of, of carbon emissions. Uh, but it's comforting in the sense that it gives a very obvious um, solution. Well, we just need fewer people. And, you know, why can't why can't people have fewer fewer children if it's that that easy and that obvious? Um, and it's a it's a solution that does not involve any kind of societal action. Really, it's a it's an individual solution uh, that, you know, with a very clear technique technological implementation, right? We just need more birth control pills, more IUDs, uh, maybe a better, you know, going back to the Bill Nye example, maybe a better birth control for men. Um, and that that will, you know, just solve these problems without, without any kind of major interventions. Yeah, it really provides that, that kind of um, almost like neoliberal technological solution that, that kind of fits with with a lot of uh, the solutions that we see, especially in international development, but also, you know, within within countries. Um, okay, well, I wanted to just close by asking you what you're working on now. So are you continuing to kind of focus on population? Are you moving into different areas? Uh, what's, what's your research trajectory? Yeah, so my current project is closely related, but not necessarily in obvious ways. I'm working on um, the history of genetic thought and genomic data in the American social sciences over the past hundred years. So it's um, a project with about the same time dimension, but going right up to the present. And, um, and it also is very closely tied to the trajectory of American eugenics. Uh, so, so some of the same characters appear in this um, chapter or in this book, as in the previous one, uh, but it's really focused on ideas about genetic causes for social outcomes and how those have made their way into molecular forms in the present in the present day. Oh, that's that's super interesting and so important right now. I mean, you just hear so many kind of resurgence of eugenic discussions with, uh, you know, with all of the kind of new research coming out. So hopefully you can do what you did for population uh, with the with the eugenics narrative uh, as well. Well, thank you so much uh, again, Emily. It was really great to talk to you. It's a really great book. It's so well written. It's really clear, deeply researched. And I think it's really a book that's important for historians, but also for, you know, economists, environmentalists, demographers, natural scientists, and all of the people who I talk to who tell me that population, overpopulation is a problem. So I'll, I'll be mailing this to people uh, to get them to maybe think twice about how we came to that opinion and whether it really is. Uh, so strongly proven as, as people tend to assume. Thanks very much. Yeah, thank you, Nicole. It was great to talk to you and I really appreciate this opportunity.